There's a lot of stuff in those uh, few verses, and I'm going to tell you up front that I'm only going to gloss over uh, four things that you've heard about already, but if you're interested in knowing more about these four things, that's what talkback time is about today. So if I kind of skip around Satan's throne a little bit, it's not because I don't want to talk about it, but there's a whole lot more to talk about than what I'm going to talk about in today's message. Or when we talk about the name Antipas, you've already heard that. Uh, there's a whole lot more to be said about him. And if you want to know that, we can answer that question later. And if you want to know about that whole thing with Balaam, which is a really great story out of the book of Numbers, we can talk about that. We can do a whole sermon on that. And if you want to know who the Nicolaitans are and who Asclepius is, we can talk about a lot of that stuff a whole lot later. That's all I'm telling you. But today, <laughs> I can be up here preaching all day is all I'm saying. Uh, we're going to talk about the compromising church today. I'm going to start off with this question. Uh, would you rather be open-minded or narrow-minded? Now, if you're open-minded, uh, typically you would be accepting. Uh, you would be tolerant. You would probably be observant. You would be unbiased. And you would be pretty understanding. But if you are narrow-minded, well, we all kind of know what narrow-minded means. It means you're probably bigoted. It probably means you're a conservative Republican. Uh, <laughs> it probably means you're opinionated, uh, you're reactionary. Maybe it even means you're intolerant. Now, we know what the correct answer to the question is, uh, is supposed to be, and that's that we all really want to be open-minded. But I would also ask you the next question, is that always a good idea to be open-minded? Well, personally, I'm not so sure uh, see, where God is spoken, his truth is never up to debate. We've got God's word. We're not debating God's word. Uh, we believe Jesus meant exactly what he meant back in John 14 when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. There's no debate in that. Now, so we're going to face it. Christians, Christ followers, that's us here today, are narrow-minded. We are narrow-minded about God's truth. We believe that God has spoken through his word and that his word is to be obeyed and that his word is well to discuss and learn, but not to be debated. We're not going to debate whether God's word is right or wrong. But, and there's always a but somehow in here, many people who claim to be Christ followers or Bible-believing people today uh, need to hear this kind of message. So in writing to the church today in Pergamum, uh, John confronts a congregation that has become far too open-minded. And we need to hear what he says because a lot of churches today across our nation are, well, so open-minded as they say all of their brains have fallen out. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that. Now today we're going to learn five things uh, about uh, what happens when we read this letter. So here's the first of the five things we're going to learn today is that no church can live on its past. Now, we don't have much of a past, but we don't want to build our entire future on our past either. The church of Pergamon actually had a really great heritage, a lot of good stuff going, uh, even in days where there was some pretty intense persecution in that church. And there was a member there whose name is Antipas. Like I said, I can talk more about that later who pays the ultimate price. Verse 13. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city. 
Now, we don't know a whole lot about him. We do know some things about him. But what matters is Jesus actually knows his name and Jesus remembers who he is. And even though Antipas is pretty much forgotten and probably within a week you're going to even forget that name, um, he's remembered in heaven. And that's the same way it is for everybody who's martyred for their faith. I mean, there are more and more people who martyred for their faith every day, and they're all unnamed. Nobody knows who these people are. We don't even really know exactly where they live. But the question is, was the church at Pergamum guilty of honoring Antipas while neglecting, neglecting to follow his example? And do we also tend to do the same? So that brings me to the second thing I want us to learn today, and that's that no church can learn, live on courage alone. Now, we shouldn't miss the good works, the good words that Jesus has to say about this church. Uh, in verse 13, he says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. Now, you can take a look at the map again. Here you see where this church is, uh, the seven churches of Revelation. Now, Pergamum is located about 65 miles north of Smyrna. That's the church that we talked about last week. And taking center in the town of Pergamum was a massive altar built to Zeus, the little g-god of all the little g-gods. Uh, Pergamum was also noted for its temple in honor of Asclepius. And uh, he's a weird dude. He's the pagan god of healing. Now, if you were there in that city, the uh, symbol of Asclepius was a snake. And it's kind of interesting today to note that the symbol of medicine today is what? It's two snakes intertwined. Uh, and it was believed that this worship of Asclepius uh, resulted in healing. But the way they did healing was a combination of being bitten by poisonous snakes and taking mud baths, which doesn't sound all that interesting to me if I don't feel very good. Now, the life, they actually had a library there uh, in this little temple of Asclepius and it had over 20,000 volumes in it and so it almost rivaled that great giant uh, library that they had down in Alexandria in Egypt so what you have is Pergamum kind of uh, combined a toxic mix of political power uh, pagan ritual Greek philosophy and a little dab of Caesar worship and like Ephesus and Smyrna before, every year, once a year, everyone who lived in that town was required to burn incense and declare Caesar is Lord. Now, of course, no self-respecting Christ follower is going to do that in good conscience. And so now you've got all-out conflict ready to go between Christians and a whole group of pagans. Now... In the, in the reading before, when it says that Satan has his throne there, it means Satan has found a place, a foothold, where he can uh, exercise diabolical influence over an entire region. Now, here's a good question to ask. Does Satan have a foothold within the Hollister community? And how close is that foothold? I'm going to give you a clue. I have my back to it. It's here. It's here. Actually, kind of gives me the willies to even think about that. But that's okay. I'm on the side of God. Uh, so through uh, some combination of idol worship and sensual pleasure, 
Satan really had kind of a sway over the entire region. And guess what? Satan still has his thrones in this world. Now, I can tell you that as an overseas missionary in many different countries of this world, I've seen this. I have come to preach at a church in Jamaica. When I got there, the road was completely packed with people, and the church was down the road, and it was kind of the question, how are we going to get there when everybody seemed to not want us there? But I standing next to my good friend Ken Hunter. He says, well, you're the one that's preaching today. You might as well start walking. And as I started walking, the crowd began to part like the Red Sea. Kind of interesting. But we also had a demon-possessed girl in church that morning that interrupted worship for a little while. There were people praying against what we were doing while we were there. So people who are out on the mission field today know all about this. Uh, Cities that are so clothed with spiritual darkness... Uh, that is resistant to, you know, almost the light that every gospel advance is coming. Uh, now, most of these people, most of us think that these are places in remote areas, like out in the middle of the jungle someplace, but they're not. There are a lot of people who are held today by demonic uh, bondage through ignorance and fear. Now, today, we're more likely to find Satan's throne in places of cultural influence, like some of our major universities in our politics and in our government, uh, in our halls of commerce, and in religious centers where prayer is offered many times a day, but where Jesus is nowhere to be found. On the one hand, it's to the credit of the church in Pergamum that they were still had a foothold in this place. Uh, they had established a foothold in the shadow of Satan's throne, and it was not easy to be a Christ follower in Pergamum. And I think we all need to be honest, it's not necessarily the easiest thing in the world today uh, to be a Christ follower uh, in the cities of Europe. It's not easy to be a Christ follower in places in Asia. It is not easy to be a Christian in some universities in America. And it's not very easy to be a Christian in places uh, where where the Muslims rule or where Hindus rule. If there is not outright opposition to you being a Christian, there is pressure for you to just shut up, keep your mouth closed, don't talk about Jesus. So there's a great battle raging between the little g-god of this world with our big g-god of the Bible. And in that battle, believers in Pergamum had not yet yielded any ground. That's to their credit. So we have to ask ourselves, what was their great failing? What happened? Well, we're going to get to our third point here today, and it's this. No church can live with error in its midst. Look again at verses 14 and 15. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teachings of Balaam. We can talk more about him later if you like. Who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food, sacrificed to idols, and by committing sexual immorality. That's in Numbers 25 numbers chapter 31 likewise he said you have also you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans and the Nicolaitans this is kind of just a, a short encapsulation they advocated participation in pagan religions and immoral behavior the Nicolaitans uh, to probably sum it up say uh, once you believe in God you're kind of locked in there which now gives you permission to do anything you want to do outside of it which basically was sexual immorality of about every kind you could even think of 
it'd be kind of like saying, well, Jeff, now that you're Lutheran, you can do whatever you want in terms of sin. Uh, that ain't going to work that way. <laughs> I'm sorry, it just doesn't work that way. So this takes us to um, the problem. The problem here is that little phrase where it says, you also have people there who hold. See, we see in these words the weakness of an otherwise very brave gathering of God's people. There was a big battle between the little G God of this world and the big G God of the Bible. In other words, they wouldn't practice church discipline. And that, that's not a word that a lot of people even like to hear when it comes to church, that we have church discipline. Uh, in the name of misguided love, they refused to throw out all of the troublemakers who held to the teachings of Balaam and to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. And there were some in church who, who, who advocated kind of a loose doctrine. I don't know, I've never heard someone of a loose doctrine, and even looser morality. And evidently at Pergamum, it kind of went this way. Uh, you know, we preach the old doctrines of the Bible here. Uh, the Bible's handed down to or the words handed down to us by the apostles. But if you don't agree with any of this stuff, um, we still have room for you here within our fellowship. Uh, if you disagree about idol worship, uh, you can stay and you can uh, continue with us. And if you frequent the temple prostitutes, well, yeah, that sounds kind of funky. And we don't really like that, but if that's what turns you on that's okay you can still be happy clappy with us on a Sunday morning and if you dislike preaching about heaven and hell uh, you might want to go find another church (laughs) that's kind of the way it was getting to be now I think we all kind of like the idea of being a church of the open door I mean I would think that restore we'd say yeah we'd welcome anybody and everybody but we'll kind of get to the but here a little bit later Uh, It's like, come one, come all, just as you are. But when pressed a little bit too far, the church can end up a mixture of truth and error, purity, impurity. And sooner or later, evil spreads so that sin no longer seems to be very sinful. I've had a member come up to me and says, you're not going to talk about sin again, are you? (laughs) I said, well, probably. (laughs) Well, I don't think you should be talking about sin. Uh, okay, how about if I change it this week? I'm going to call it a momentary indiscretion. And they said, that's more palatable. We're not going to confess our momentary indiscretions. And we should be like, okay, whatever we did this last week, good, bad, or indifferent, oh, happy, clappy, go with God's peace, and don't do anything really weird this week. That's, oh, man, makes me want to puke. <laughs> It really does. Uh, And I think we see this today uh, before our very eyes in the great kind of cultural shift. And I'm going to talk about a very sensitive subject now. It has to do with what real marriage is. I mean, think about this way. The simple truth of this matter is that up until very recently... The Christian church and basically all branches of Christianity stood against same-sex marriages. Uh, We had about a 2,000-year track record of consistency based clearly upon what God's Word says, starting back in Genesis 1 all the way through the end of Revelation. But now we're not so sure. In fact, I've kind of thought about how this decline happened. Stage number one, a church took a stand. They had a stand 
uh, in favor of traditional marriage between a man and a woman. But the next thing you do, they got down to stage number two, is where the church began to be ridiculed for that thing. You know, oh, you're a bunch of uh, Bible thumpers and do-gooders. You're against everything. Well, then stage three came around where the church members kind of felt uncomfortable with that negative publicity they were getting in the community. And then they kind of got to stage four. Um, and they're going to start to kind of de-emphasize their position in order not to offend people they're trying to reach with the gospel. In some cases, they actually make an appointment with the pastor and come and say, you need to stop talking about all of that offensive stuff. And then we get to stage five. Some people begin to wonder if same-sex marriage is really wrong. And then we get to the next stage where they find supposedly Christian authors um, who defend it as being kind of morally neutral. And then you get to stage number seven where the church just says, we have no opinion on this. We're not going to talk about this. And then you get to stage number eight where the church welcomes those who have a different position on this issue. Now, when you look at it that way, the worst of it is this. Many people in the congregation have no idea what just happened. This has been a slippery slope. They keep on attending. They keep on giving. They keep on supporting. And on one level, the church kind of remains faithful to the Bible. On another, it tolerates people who not only practice, but promote unbiblical and ungodly teaching. And then the end is the church receives both a commendation and a warning from the Lord. That's where Pergamum is. Yeah, you've done okay, but here's what I've got against you folks. See, there's one final thing we need to add here, and this is that no church remains in the Pergamum stage forever. You don't get into this wishy-washy, mushy-gushy stuff. You're going to go one way or the other. Uh, You can't hold fast to sound doctrine while at the same time harboring immorality. And in the end, end, the church needs to go one way or the other. Otherwise, God says, I wish you were hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, I spit you right out of my mouth. Well, here's the fourth thing we want to learn today, and that's that no church can live in a divided state forever. If there's division in a church, and maybe some of you have been in places where there was a division in the church. Well, i got to tell you, I've been very fortunate in the churches I've pastored. I had to deal with one small division had over to do with worship styles. But you you can conquer those kinds of things. But a divided state is not good in the church. And that brings us to the Lord's call in verse 16. He says, Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, the question is, who's supposed to repent here? Well, certainly the false teachers, because it's their only hope of avoiding eternal damnation. Uh, But the greater call, I think, goes to the church and to individual members who would actually harbor moral or spiritual compromise. And see, kind of in the name of open-mindedness or toleration, many churches have subtly compromised the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's why I believe that Jesus here is speaking to a church itself more so than he's talking to false teachers. See, he says if the church doesn't take strong actions when these things kind of pop up or crop up, uh, he'll do it himself. I, I find that pretty frightening. 
And remember, uh, his judgment is going to be a whole lot worse than ours. Uh, the same Jesus who says, come unto me, all you labor and heavy laden, is also in scripture says, depart from me, Satan. I want no part of you. Now, I don't know about you, but I find that a frightening thing when Jesus says, I will fight against you. Boom. He almost gives me the willies to think about that. Because uh, you're going to lose every time. As they say, your arms are way too short to box with God. Jesus has the right to make that judgment because he judges with perfect judgment. That's where we get to verse 12. That's what verse 12 means when he says, These words come from him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. See, the sword is God's unwavering, unsparing judgment. Uh, he sees through the facade of religiosity and just cuts right to the core. But now there's a fifth thing we need to learn today, too, and that, that, that no church can live without a word of hope. Even the worst church, boy, they desperately need words of hope. See, Jesus ends with several wonderful promises. He said, if you overcome by faith, in verse 17, what does he say? To him who overcomes, and now we get into some kind of weird stuff again, I will give him some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Now you're probably going, now what? Okay, some of you are probably thinking, okay, hidden manna. Uh, is this got anything to do with communion? <laughs> you might have made a little loop like, well, yeah. Uh, what's this white stone with the name written on it? That only, well, <laughs> well, in contrast to the people in Pergamum who talked about hidden mysteries all the time, uh, Jesus offers something great, greater, which is called hidden manna. And this just speaks of a personal communion with the Lord. And so there, there's something here about communion. Jesus is saying, I'm greater than all the allurements of this world. Those who eat the living bread and drink the, the living blood will never hunger or thirst again. And so that's, as we have community, that's part of the whole process. But see, this white stone, now you, somebody's like, when am I getting the rock here? This white stone talks about purity. But what is the new name that is written on it and known only to the person who receives it? Well, actually, that's a pretty easy question to answer. No one knows for certain because no one has yet ever received a stone with the name on it. Uh, and someday you're going to all figure this out when you get into heaven and Jesus hands you a white stone with your name. And it'll be the name that you, only you'll know. I find that kind of intriguing. It's kind of like, welcome to heaven. Have a rock. <laughs> rock on, dude. <laughs> But this, but this text offers us a wonderful assurance. It, we will each be known by the Lord. That's what it's saying. We'll all be known by the Lord when we get to heaven. He's going to call us by a name that, that only we will know. And exactly how this can be, I, I can't say. But you know, I've been called a lot of names in my life. But God's got a special name for every last one of you. And it's most assuredly true. So it says in Scripture. Now, in that great day when you and I finally get to heaven, Jesus will be both our Lord and our most trusted friend forever. So we kind of come to the end of this very solemn message to the people at Pergamum today. Uh, his words need to be taken very seriously. I kind of wrestled back and forth with this message all week long. I don't really know why. I just knew it was kind of a hard message in a way. 
But I also want at the same time not only to be a hard message, but a message of reassurance for those people who stand in Christ Jesus as their Lord. I realize it's not enough just to be orthodox in our theology. It's not even enough to have the courage to face uh, opposition. Now, we need to all understand that we cannot tolerate um, in the church those who would threaten the purity of our testimony to God's word. I mean, God's word is God's word. That's it. Settled. This is a message that I think I know it's a message I know I needed to hear. And I pray that this is a message that we all needed to hear today if we're going to be truly a lighthouse in darkness. And we kind of have that reputation already, and that's not a bad deal. Restore is kind of a lighthouse in this community. We have a report that's going out to our sister, our mother congregation today that talks about how even the people at Hollister schools know we're here and they know what we're doing. Down the road, White River knows who we are and what we're doing. This last Thursday, I don't know how many people, 30, 40 families came through here who know who we are and what we're doing. And one thing that they know most of all is that this is a gathering of believers who believe in this community. And they're here for us. See, this is a message if we're going to continue to be a lighthouse in darkness and an oasis of healing to a whole bunch of broken people and hurting people who desperately need to be restored. Some of those people who need to be restored are us each and every week we gather here. We've been broken down during the course of the week by something or other. We, we said things we shouldn't have said. We thought things we shouldn't have said. We, we treated people worse than we should have treated them. And we come and we are just a bunch of broken, beat up people who need to hear God's word to say, you're still my son, you're still my daughter. And even as you confess that brokenness, I am here to pronounce restoration into your life. This is a message that we need to heed if we're truly going to be this lighthouse. Now, we can't help sinners um, by saying that sin is not sinful. Uh, Jesus came to save sinners, but if the church no longer uh, condemns sin, then quite honestly, we don't have much to preach about anymore. Uh, Where sin is winked at, where sin is renamed, like the person said, well, can't you call it a momentary indiscretion, Pastor? Uh, No, uh, sin, I like that word, it's short, I I can remember that one. Uh, Or where the church turns a blind eye to moral compromise and dismiss is precisely that extent the church commits spiritual suicide. Why are some churches today closing? We are closing an awful lot of churches in America in the the last number of years. Now, a lot of it people are going to blame it on COVID. People kind of bailed out of COVID and never came back. But I think there's a little bit more to that. I think there are a lot of people who have compromised the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm not here to point fingers at anybody. I'm here just to remind us, us who are here to say, let's not compromise God's word. See, truth never excuses sin. And so may God help us to stand strong in the gospel in this age of moral compromise. There's one last paragraph on the screen. And this is, I want you to read this together with me. It's my closing statement. If people call us narrow-minded, let us take it as a compliment and stay the course. Let's be as narrow as God's truth is narrow and as broad as God's grace is broad. And God bless us as we pursue that.